trigger warning. The following podcast is a candid interview that contains mentions and descriptions of suicide, self-harming acts, as well as other references to mental health disorders that some listeners may be sensitive to or find disturbing. Please know that resources for help and support are available. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Washington Patient Safety Coalition's podcast titled Let's Talk About Mental Health and Suicide. I am Anita Sulaiman, Chair of WPSC's Addressing Stigma and Bias Workgroup. Our goal is to eliminate the stigma around mental health and suicide, creating and building on awareness through real conversations with individuals who suffer from mental illness and their families. We want to expose the barriers that prevent people from getting the help, medical care and support they need so that they can cope, heal and hopefully thrive. Mental health in America is being called the second pandemic. Mental health afflicts millions of Americans. Its manifestation runs the gamut from anxiety to depression, burnout, psychotic disorders and suicide. One in five adults experience mental illness. One in 20 adults experience serious mental illness. Among youth ages six to 17, one in six experience a mental health disorder. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34. With COVID-19, this problem is compounded, especially in the healthcare workforce, So the people caring for us are bearing the brunt. According to NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness, people with depression have a 40% higher risk of developing cardiovascular and cardiometabolic diseases than the general population. For those with serious mental illness, the likelihood is almost double. Worldwide, depression is a leading cause of disability. Depression and anxiety disorders cost the global economy $1 trillion each year in lost productivity. Mental Health America conducted a screening last year between January to September. It showed that the number of people looking for help with anxiety and depression has skyrocketed with a whopping 93% increase over the 2019 total. In September 2020, 37% reported having thoughts of suicide, over half or nearly every day, over half off or nearly every day. Rates of suicidal ideation are highest among youth, especially LGBTQ plus youth. In September 2020, more than 50% of 11 to 17 year olds reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm over half or nearly every day of the previous two weeks. The numbers are staggering. We are in the middle of a serious mental health crisis. This is an important, much needed conversation. With me today are two guests who have graciously and courageously agreed to share their personal stories. Carrie Thompson is a mother, teacher, writer, and suicide loss survivor. I met her at a 46 climbs hiking event that she organized in memory of her son in the capacity of a local organizer for AFSP, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. 46 climbs is an annual event encouraging many individuals across the US and the world to take on the challenge of conquering suicide through the physical challenge of climbing and hiking. Mark Leeper is Executive Director of Disability Action Center, Northwest Inc. He is also a suicide survivor. Kerry, Mark, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Um, Kerry, would you like to start? Sure. Um, my name is Kerry Thompson. I lost my son to suicide in July of 2019 at the age of 23. Um, He had dinner with me that night and went home and took his life. And my entire world kind of burned down. And um, we ended up, that was in New Hampshire. We ended up on a cross-country move. 
relocated to Washington State. Um, I'm a teacher here. I write about issues related to my experience with my son and other things. Um, and, you know, I got involved with the AFSP program and I have been on this sort of odyssey of trying to understand and figure out um, sort of how to move forward and honor my son's life at the same time and also try to help other families who are facing um, mental health crisis and suicide loss and try to sort of contribute to the conversation and also supporting other people who are dealing with it. Thank you for that. Mark? Hi, thank you for having me here. As Mark Leeper, uh, I'm executive director, as you mentioned, of Disability Action Center Northwest. It's a private nonprofit that's run by and for people with a disability, with any kind of disability. And uh, so one of the large underserved uh, groups in terms of um, living in control of their own lives to the extent that they want are people with a mental illness, with psychiatric disability, whatever terminology you use. I have that history myself. I'm not sure whether it's uh, anxiety from depression or depression from anxiety, but I guess the bottom line is it all kind of manifests itself in, uh, and at times in my history, certainly suffering with a mental illness, but uh, I would say now living with a mental illness um, because uh, it's something that you do have to end up living, living with, I think. Um, Disability Action Center is one of about 400 centers around the country that are run by folks with disabilities where we try to connect with each other through to uh, uh, support each other in reaching our goals. And uh, recently, I've kind of come out a little bit more in terms of my own, uh, maybe it's the pandemic, but in terms of my own history and trying to understand that whole process of what drives somebody to suicide, certainly people I've worked with. Um, I remember one young man with a head injury, head injury survivor. Um, I have a cousin, um, a, a number of folks in my family and, and friends. Um, and so it's a, it's a topic that's not talked about enough. And so I've started talking about mine and maybe it's a little bit of an understanding for me as well, uh, because it's a life, it's a lifetime of, you know, learning to deal with, uh, life issues. So I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Well, we're very fortunate to have you. These are two very valuable perspectives. In the U.S., every 11 minutes, we lose someone to suicide. This topic is personal for me. Several years ago, I started the new year with news that a childhood friend had died by suicide. A close friend lost her only son to suicide when he was about 15. I have people close to me who have been struggling with depression, anxiety, self-harm, even suicide ideation. And, you know, personally, of course, I've had my struggles too. And we all are finding that it's not really a very easy topic to be able to discuss openly. So, you know, the thing is, the more we talk about this, the more we realize that mental health conditions afflict more of us um, than we imagine. So I sincerely thank you both for being here today. Um, Mark, uh, could you please tell us more about your story? Well, it goes I personal story goes back back a number of years. And and I was a young man that was dealing with trying to become an adult. And in in the face of uh of you know, who knows, nature nurture, uh there's there's uh mental health issues in my family. Um and I struggled. And uh so it happened that um being somewhat surgical in nature, I I I cut myself and, uh, and, and effectively so that, uh, you know, I did spend some time in a psychological ward uh, where I was impressed because they actually sold razor blades down in the, in the little store that you could access. So that was helpful. And so I attempted again there, and I wouldn't even say attempted suicide because I, it, it almost sounds trite in comparison to what happens, but I think I was driven by the same things that a lot of people are driven by. Um, and uh, cause I was hurting. Um, and, uh, so that was my out, uh, finally, uh, after I moved back down to my grandparents, my sisters in Canada, I uh, was born in the United States. I moved to Canada. My father lived in Canada and, uh, mother's family down here. And I came back down and, uh, ultimately then attempted again. And, and it was, uh, but for the case of a blood transfusion, 
um, in an ambulance uh, would have succeeded. As my grandparents uh, described it, uh, it's a rural North Idaho thing. It was uh, much akin to uh, coming in when somebody had butchered a deer. And uh, so that was my history at that time. And it's, you know, it's still emotional to talk about because I think back to, I, I think about people that are hurting and I think sometimes it's not evident outside. Um, and, and there are so many choices now that I talk to people about um, that I didn't think of at that time. Making a choice was the hardest thing in the world to do at that time. Um, right. There was only one thing I could think of. And so that was kind of my history. I didn't grew up like all folks and ultimately got involved in working with folks with a disability, even though that was the last thing on my mind. I had all of the, the same stereotypes in my mind as anybody else of, oh my God, I'd never want to use a wheelchair. Now I think if I want I need to use a wheelchair, I want a sporty one, you know? And uh, so things change over time, but, but through that, I've never left, uh, forgot thinking about that issue of what would make a young person, all of the things on the outside saying, hey, you've got everything going for you. Um, you're intelligent, you're good looking uh, from other people's standards. I didn't feel that way. Right. That is the uh, but, question, isn't um, it? So how old were you when you made these um, attempts? I was started out when I was 17. Um, I believe I was uh, 18 or 19, my last, uh, my last attempt. And that was it. Um, that was, that was the enough realization that I didn't want to die. Um, I just wanted to stop hurting. Um, and that's always stuck with me. The tragedy of, I had a cousin who um, went back and shot himself um, one evening. And I've often thought, um, had there been the opportunity to, uh, to talk before, you know, I, you know, again, you don't know, but it's, uh, yeah, that was the, the time period for me. Right. So you're really trying to do something about pain that you were experiencing? Yeah, I often liken that, you know, I think at the time, um, people go through all sorts of emotions. There's a societal response. My father was convinced that uh, I was, you know, blaming him for something. So he personalized it as, you know, kind of an attack on him. And I hated to tell him, but he was the first thing from my, from my mind. I, I liken it to uh, my apologies to Stephen King or my compliments to Stephen King for the name of the book, The Dead Zone. I, 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 it was entering the dead zone. I, I wasn't feeling anything. Um, I was feeling a sense of I had to do something and that was something I was doing. I'm not even sure I was cognizant um, other than the fact I was very successful at hitting arteries. And, um, you know, then that's just kind of the, as things transpired, I mean, this is pretty kind of graphic, but as things transpired, it was, uh, there was enough uh, sedative effect of blood loss that the anxiety wasn't there. And all of a sudden it was, wait a minute, I better call out. And that's about what I had enough strength to do at that time, I guess, because uh, I don't remember anything past that. Right. So. And um, did you try to get help or to reach out? You know, uh, at the time I didn't. I did when I was up in Canada because healthcare was available. And um, I had uh, spent quite a bit of time with a psychiatrist. I'd gone through all the medication gambits. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of medications out there. There's not a lot of cures out there. Um, and I tend to be kind of sensitive to medications anyway. Um, and so I kind of struggled, bounced around with that stuff. And, and I think we're always looking for a cure. Um, and sometimes I don't think there is a cure because that ideal that we're thinking exists doesn't really exist uh, in the way that we perceive it anyway. Um, so I'd gotten, gotten a lot of help at that time. When I was down uh, stateside, I didn't until after the attempt. And that was very short-lived because uh, the, uh, um, there just wasn't much available. It's a rural community I'm in. And uh, right. yeah. That's, that's so often, uh, the case, it seems, um, people who are in those situations don't know what to do, don't know what they can do, don't know who they can reach out to. Was that um, how your experience? Yeah, I think uh, it didn't occur to me. I hadn't right. had the level of counseling 
that really would um, would deal with the emotional aspects. It tended to be to tended to be medication management, um, and even my interactions with the psychiatrist in Canada would revolve around, you know, stelazine, stematil, uh, at that time, carbogen, a carbon dioxide therapy, they would try. And so various things that, um, you know, I, I, that, that's kind of what I think they knew to do at that time. Uh, so I hadn't really gotten involved in, in things like positive psychology didn't exist. Uh, so some of the things I started to learn later, um, I think helped me, but, uh, um, yeah, down it's stuff was the only time I tried to access assistance um, in the United States was I found that any of the public programs I was working and earning as a as an aide in special education and earning five hundred and fifty five dollars a month. Um, and so I tried to find some assistance in mental health uh, services through um, the local public agency and found that they really they had crisis response. And that was it. There right. really wasn't anything available. So. Did you ever worry about um, letting people know about your struggles, that people would find out about how hard it was for you and what exactly you were going through? You know, I didn't worry about that too much. I don't think I knew how to articulate it. And I think it was more a response that people have. Uh, again, they look at the external. Um, and for all intents and purposes, I passed really well. I looked like I was doing well. I, you know, I, I could appear happy. I looked in control. Uh, I could go into a group and people would think I was standoffish. In fact, I was terrified. Um, but I looked, uh, looked like I was being stuck up. Well, no, I was bashful and afraid. But that was the perception because you develop these masks. Uh, and so it makes it a little bit hard for people to connect on that level. And it's hard for people. I think when you do, you don't know what to do. You don't know how to respond to folks. We're awkward to that. We're awkward with people who, who, in exactly. various situations, exactly. it's certainly something that personal. Right, and this is a very difficult topic to broach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. moving on to Carrie. Carrie, you lost your beautiful son Benjamin, who was vibrant, active, a good student. So, could you please tell us what happened? Tell us your story and Ben's story. Yeah, um, Ben graduated from college cum laude in May of 2019. Um, he and I had had several discussions over the course of his last couple of years of college about some concerns that he had about his own mental health. Um, I have a bipolar mood disorder and he felt like he might as well. Um, he and I discussed sort of the feelings that he had and how to go about seeking some treatment. He did seek treatment. Um, he was waitlisted twice um, for some counseling services. And um, then uh, his college schedule got kind of really busy um, in the, his last year of college. And um, he, um, he uh, sort of stopped thinking about it, if you will. Um, he was taking 24 credits that's that fall and he pulled a four out and then he had 23 credits in the spring of his senior year and he I think ended up with a 3.9 um got an a minus in one class um and he was doing his senior capstone project and you know he was extraordinarily successful at what he was doing his capstone project was featured on his university website and he was interviewed on the local news station when they did the capstone presentations. Um, and he, you know, he got a lot of awards at graduation. Um, he was named top senior in his program. Just, you know, it seemed like he had found the glide path. Um, and I think inside he had been working so hard that he stopped doing the things that he needed to do to practice some self-care. Um, you know, he was always a big outdoors guy. Um, he hiked and he snowboarded and just, if you, if it was outside, he was all over it. He climbed trees, you know, he just, he loved being outside and his last year of college, he didn't snowboard maybe three or four days out of the whole um, winter um, because he was just so focused on getting through school and he had so much work to do. And so he 
he kind of, I like to say he lost the ground because he lost touch with it. Um, he, uh, you know, he stopped staying in contact with it. Um, but anyway, he, um, he graduated from, from college and he had been so busy trying to get through school and doing as much as he was that he didn't really have a plan for post-college. Um, he had a couple of job prospects and it seemed like they were going to come through and I don't think he was terribly interested in them. Um, they were just things to do. And he was, you know, he had concerns. Um, he and I talked about it a couple of times, but he did seem like he was, you know, just, um, he, like I said, I, I like to, I thought he had found the glide path that he needed to be on. Um, he seemed happy. Uh, we had a crazy, hilarious, laughter filled dinner, um, with my mom, uh, and my other son, the night that Ben died. Um, and he and I had planned to go to dinner the next day and I was going to swing by his house and pick up some things for him because he was moving out. Um, and he went home and he took his own life. And I like to say that he opened the door to the monster that was inside it. Um, you know, Mark, it's interesting. You said that you felt successful and you were, and you hid your inner pain. That was Ben. You described Ben almost to a T. Um, he hid his inner struggle. So he was so private about some of his inner stuff. I had seen glimpses. Um, I knew that he had been through a lot of stress through his senior year, but he said that he had, you know, he was feeling relief because he had graduated. And I think um, in retrospect, he induced a bipolar crisis by working so hard and, you know, he wasn't taking care of himself. And I think he was going through a pretty serious bipolar crash and he didn't know that that's what it was. Um, and he just was in the, in retrospect, I think I loved your description of being in sort of a dead zone, Mark. Um, it, it's sad and tragic and I don't mean I love it as in it's a good thing, but it makes sense to me because I feel like that's where he was. And I think he knew that he was loved beyond measure but I don't think he knew how to tell us how dark things were inside. And I think he just didn't know what to say. And so, you know, he went home alone and I got the phone call probably a couple hours after I saw him that he had passed away. Um, and I think, you know, I started my own journey at that point to try to understand it. I started going outside seeking him. Um, trying to find him outside. And I, you know, needed the connection. Um, and I find him on mountaintops and on rivers and, you know, places where there's outside. Uh, I like to say that the only place big enough to hold this much grief is on a mountaintop where I can look out into the world. So that's kind of how I decided to deal with it. Um, I started, Ben was a big adventurous kid and so I started sort of taking my own adventures. You know, I hiked to the New Hampshire 48 and I wrote an article that got published in the New York Times about it. Um, and then I had people starting, I had people, a lot of people reached out, you know, like, hey, I loved what you had to say about this thing. And, and um, I connected with people who have also suffered suicide loss. Um, and I found people that speak the language of suicide loss and the complexities of it. Um, my family faced a lot of judgment about how open we were about the fact that Ben had taken his life. Uh, a lot of judgment there. Um, people didn't understand why we were so honest about it. Um, you know, it just, I feel like there's two forms of dying that people really struggle with. Um, I think they're closely related. One is overdose and the other is suicide. Um, they're both diseases of despair. Um, I think suicide is an illness, not an act. It's not a single act. It's a long illness and I feel like it needs to be fought and the battle is a long and drawn out and terrible one. And I feel like Ben lost his battle. I feel like he was fighting it, but he lost it. And I think part of the reason that he lost his battle is that he didn't know how to talk about it. Um, and he didn't feel that he could because talking about feeling suicidal is a lot of, I think he felt that he would be judged. Um, and I think he felt that he would be found lacking and that he wouldn't, you know, be exposing has 
I'm, I'm not as successful as I seem. I'm not as happy as I seem. Um, and I think that we need to shine a giant, brilliant spotlight on the issues around suicide and mental illness so that we can find the language to talk about it. Um, I recently read a book by Donald Antrim. I don't know if you've, if you've seen it, but it just got, I think it came out in October and it's about his experience of um, attempting suicide or feeling like he was going to and his struggle with mental illness and the odyssey that he took through the mental health system. Um, it's a really brilliant book and it made a lot of sense to me. And he said a lot of things in his book that you have said, Mark, about how he felt at the time. And it's not that he didn't know that people cared about him. It's that he didn't know how to, how to go about expressing what he was feeling. Um, and I just find that if we can have a frank and open conversation and encourage people to start talking about it, have those awkward conversations, that's, um, you know, it's, it's as much about giving people the space to respect their experiences. Um, you know, I think, I think the illness, the pain becomes action. I think it, you know, they say from uh, studies that the AFSP has done that it's uh, the pain turns to an impulse, impulse turns to action. Um, and sometimes they succeed. Um, but I feel like the work that I do and the journey that I'm on is honoring men every day. Um, the pain that I have is never going to go away, never going to get better, but I've gotten better at carrying it around. And um, the thing that I say to other suicide loss survivors who have recently had a loss is it's going to suck for a long time, but eventually the light will find you at the bottom of the cliff and you can figure out a way to move forward and you get better at carrying around this huge hole that I have in my life that Ben was in. And I don't know that, you know, at first I started trying to fill it, um, with other, you know, like experiences. And then I figured out that it's not about filling that space. It's about honoring it um, and learning how to walk around it and learning that's how to carry it. it. Yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at is figuring out how to go forward. You know, my life has two parts when Ben was in it and now that he's not, and I'm still trying to figure out the next chapter. I think I'm getting there. I have my days, but I also have days where I feel joy and grief at the same time, sometimes in the very same breath, they do coexist. And, um, you know, I, I stopped asking why, um, because I think that's kind of the wrong question. I think the why question is unanswerable. And I got a lot better at handling my grief with it when I stopped asking why he did it. Um, I started asking why he didn't feel like he could talk about it. Because I feel like that's a way better question. You know, it's striking the similarities, if you both notice, between the two stories. And this is just two people coming together to have a conversation here on this platform. Imagine if we have many of these conversations and people talking to each other. The main thing is, you know, when you're going through something like this, you're so in that experience that you you feel entirely alone. Um, and given the statistics that I've just mentioned, just the two stories you've shared, there's so many recurring themes here, you know, and, and the, the most striking to me is the fact that both cases, we have seemingly successful um, people who are intelligent, who have um, families. The reason I bring this up is because I think for the average person, if you are asked what kind of person they think struggles with severe mental health conditions or suicide, that would not be the picture that would come up. This is why we have people asking questions like, well, when you hear of a celebrity, well, why would he do that? Or why would she do that? You know, they're successful, uh, they're wealthy. The thing is, mental illness is a health condition. People don't ask, why is this person coughing? Why is this person having a flu? Can you not stop? And on that, on, on that note, if you're a person of faith, you have to deal with people uh, often saying, well, have you prayed about it? 
implying that your faith isn't strong enough. So there are all these things which really add to the stigma, which is the big elephant in the room. Um, do you both feel that stigma impacts what has happened and what's been happening with mental illness in your case and in the cases of the people around you that you're aware of who deal with this? Yeah, I would think certainly the there's not much place for admitting weakness. Right. I mean, you both spoke our, about judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, our, our society doesn't champion that. Everything is, you've got to work 60 hours a week. You've got to, uh, you've got to be a four-point student, even though anybody that looks at a bell curve knows that's not where the average should be. And so, and yet that's the pressure. So there's that constant push to perform and that sense that there must be a life perfect where everybody gets it, that right. that's everybody else is, is doing fine with that. So what's my problem? Why am I such a loser? You know, that I can't figure this out and be happy. This is, there's no way I can overcome. I think I'm doing everything I can. And so how do you talk about that? There right. doesn't exist until you start dealing with maybe folks in NAMI, uh, people with a personal experience, and you start to realize, oh, wow, I guess this life perfect maybe doesn't exist as much as I was taught to think, you know, right. or, or not even taught to think, but just led myself to think. I mean, everything we have is geared toward uh, the importance of success from a very, very young age. Well, at and least success is measured by how we feel. Yeah. It's not how we feel. Success right. isn't feeling great or being really comfortable and supportive to our friends and family. It tends to be what did we achieve? And right. so that there's that antithesis to, you know, really feeling good about yourself when you don't feel like you're meeting some, some imagined mark. And so, yeah, I, I think that's, that's out there. It's, it's, it's a, there's a stigma all the way through, but a lot of it's self-induced. It's a, and it's a sense of, of somehow we, we should be cured. If we're not being cured, it's somehow our fault. And um, yet I don't know that, you know, it's kind of like a spectrum. It's, it, it moves on a spectrum. There's not an absolute, you have mental illness and you don't, you know, it's a, it, with issues. And at some point it becomes encompassing enough that it becomes a major health issue. And um, at what point does that happen? Well, we don't talk about it because it's not seen in the same way, as you mentioned, of uh, having a cough or uh, a right. flu. Well, you know, the community really, and that includes the medical community, does not view mental health the same way they view physical health. And both of you use the word weakness. It's not okay, we've, we perceive, uh, to have that sort of weakness. Carrie, what do you think? Well, I was going to say, we, I think we, you know, like there's all this stuff out there about self-care and how, you know, you need to take time for yourself. And then when you do, people are like, oh, you're not working hard enough. Um, so you're kind of like between these two things about like, well, you know, take some time, you know, and so if you take a mental health day, then it's like you either come back to have way more work than you start. I mean, I'm a teacher, right? And so we get constant things about make sure you're practicing self-care, but self-care becomes five minutes before the faculty meeting where we're doing mindfulness, you know, and it's like, well, five minutes of mindfulness doesn't really do it for me. Um, and so there's just this sort of a, a lot of our expressions of taking care of yourself it's almost like lip service um and so you're you're kind of like you're i worked 80 hours and people are like wow look at you go but then other people you know so i just feel like there's no there's no way to find that balance um and for me the the idea of i mean when after ben died I, i've been fairly open about the fact that i have a mood disorder it's been managed for a long time you know i i I have things that I do and I have things that I have to do for myself to manage my own health. Um, I find it stunning that we talk about mental health and physical health as if they're two separate things because the brain and the mind are inside the body, <laughs> you know? Um, and so it, it doesn't matter if you're mentally ill, you're still ill. Um, and that's the piece that I, I just, I think that some of it, the mind, the mind is inside the body and so if the mind is ill the body's ill um 
I just, I don't see them as two separate things. Um, but the thing about sort of judgment, you know, we put it right in the paper that Ben, Ben died by suicide. And a lot of people were just kind of like, well, they, they just, wow, that, that was honest, you know, and uh, I was, they're uncomfortable know. with it. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're very uncomfortable. And then, um, you know, I had people like, are, are you okay? Like, I know you have a mood disorder. Like, are you sure you're okay? I'm like, no, if I'm telling you I'm okay, I'm really okay right now, you know? Um, and I had people, I had people suggest that I was suicidal myself. Um, I had people suggest that I was somehow incompetent um, in my own, but what I was, was grieving. Um, and the fact that my grief was encompassing didn't mean that I wasn't managing it. I was just, you know, grieving for the loss of my son that I had known for 23 years and less than a month after he died, people were like, oh, are you better? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and so people, our society doesn't deal well with grief. We don't deal well with, um, with strong emotions. It's, it's bad to express if you're struggling, but it's bad to, you know, it, there's just, I kind of feel like you're stuck, you know, like we're kind of between these two extremes of working really hard or taking care of yourself, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I, I think that striking that balance is super hard. Um, and I, I think that the more that we can give people the language to talk about it. And also, you know, some of it, I think is there's a fear, right? If you express that you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, there's just this, we don't have a good way to deal with it, right? I mean, you end up in the in a room at the hospital waiting for a bed somewhere and they take away all your stuff and, you know, you're in a hospital gown and someone's watching you the whole time because they're concerned about you. Um, and that, you know, that experience is, that's, that's terrible. Right. So on top um, of everything else, you have to worry about what happens to you if you yeah. express the struggle. Right. Yeah, you know, it's, it, there's, I don't think there's any, it's a complicated thing and it's a terrible illness, but we need to treat it as an illness. It's not a single, I, I really liked what it was from the Don Antrim book. Um, it's suicide is an illness, not a single act. And the more that we can talk about it as an illness, it's not, it, the, the act is the yeah. final sort of thing in an illness that's long and drawn out. And you know, I think you distilled it earlier when you mentioned pain becomes an impulse, which then becomes an action. And so you can you can really see how suicide is an act and not an illness. And you mentioned language. Language is really important. There's things, there's a movement now in healthcare, for instance, to use the right language so that we can see people in the right light. Instead of saying somebody is a drug addict, we say they have a substance use disorder, for instance. And you had educated me um, when I used the term committed suicide in our initial conversation, because when you say commit suicide, then you imply and you put the blame on the person. Whereas if you say that they died by suicide, there's a difference. Would you like to uh, go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I think it goes to the idea that it's, it's an illness. Suicide, the act is, is the result of an illness that people are suffering from. Um, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff that's, that it, it can be its own illness that, you know, maybe we need to talk about suicide as an illness in and of itself, you know, a complication, a complication of other mental illnesses perhaps, but also that it's possible to suffer from suicide as an illness and not necessarily have severe other things, um, ending up in you know, the dead zone that Mark talked about, where the spirit is dying inside, and we need to identify that. Um, and, and how the language that we use to do that is, I, I haven't, you know, I, I'm not an expert on it. I, you know, but I, I'm a student of it in terms of trying to understand how to go about discussing it and how to respect other people's experiences. And, you know, Mark, I appreciate your openness with your own thoughts. It just, it explains a lot um, in terms of, 
kind of confirming some things and certainly one person's experience is not everyone's experience. I want to make that clear. My experience of losing my son is different than my children's experience of losing their sibling. Um, but we're all sort of in this position of losing someone and trying to figure out, you know, how can we stop other people? How can we, how can we prevent other families going through this? Um, and are we going to stop every suicide? I, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's, that's not really the point. The point is giving people the language of trying to talk about it, respecting the experience of suicide um, and figuring out how we can just, you know, catch, save people from, from this illness. You know, we lose people to cancer. We lose people to, to, um, you know, other, other illnesses, the more that we can treat suicide as an illness, just the way we do when we talk about addiction as an illness, yes. maybe, maybe yes. we can, we can respect the experience and figure out a way to, you know, stop treating it as a single thing and yes. treat it as this progression. If we can stop the progression earlier, maybe we get the, right. you know, we alleviate the pain. Um, well, it's also, sooner. It's also empowering versus disempowering when you treat it as an illness, because there's methodologies for how um, you can prevent, you can treat, and therefore hopefully help people heal. Um, you know, at the heart of this, the bigger, the main problem is that mental health is something that has a stigma attached to it. And if mental health has a stigma, suicide is absolutely taboo. Like you mentioned, just mentioning, publishing the fact that your son died by suicide is even not acceptable to family members. Why? Because, you know, maybe they're embarrassed. Um, and we have to be able to say these things because really, if you listen to this conversation, what we what we kind of tiptoeing around is the fact that society deems that it is not okay to be seen as weak, not sick, not have an illness, but to not have everything together. Um, so I'm hoping with this conversation that anyone listening will see that and will understand and accept that it really is okay to be not okay. We have to be able to say that and we have to be able to tell people that. Um, saying it and actually believing it is, uh, they are two different things. So, you know, this is a progression, something that we can move towards. Um, I'd like to ask Mark, hearing Carrie's story, and this is the story of a a family member who's lost a loved one. Um, what's going through your mind as somebody who is a suicide survivor? So you know what it's like being inside a person who, you know, not only thought about it, but has attempted it. Well, I, that's a really good question because, and, and I'll be brutally honest is there's I was a just going to say I apologize for my brutally frank no. question <laughs> no it's 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 a great question because and, and I'll be totally honest too because it's something I've thought about is I feel a measure of guilt um you know I'm here and her son's not um and that's we carry all of that stuff it's all emotional stuff we all carry and we are really poor at dealing with emotional stuff in, in our culture Right. Uh, we're not very good at that. We don't deal with when somebody dies naturally. I, I still remember my uh, my mother-in-law um, used to have a, a friend she talked to who had lost his wife a very long time with, with, for, well, with cancer. And and she used to ask him when she seemed, she, John, how are you doing? Are you thinking about Betty? And he finally said to her, he says, I want to say thank you so much for asking me because everybody else steers away from the question you know they, they they just kind of ignore it because they don't want to go there it's uncomfortable and i think that's what 
in terms of what I'm experiencing, there's a level of, of discomfort. At the same time, you know, I, it's, I've learned enough, I think, of, of that's, that's part of my frustration. And I think that's where we all band together and start to say, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to share that. You know, it's, it's hard to categorize suicide and, and, and mental illness almost as an illness because we're not very good at, at, at uh, in a sense, at, at uh, curing it. And there's, right. there's all those things that come into play that, you know, what responsibility does a patient have in terms of being cured and, and so on. So there's all those. So all of those things go through. But when I, when I hear those very personal stories, I just, again, I think it's so tragic. If I had my way, I would want to have some methodology where everybody would have time to have a release of, of anxiety and, and, and think as to whether they actually really want to die. And that's really hard to say, because I know that's but I'm thinking, Carrie, that's probably what you've thought of as well. Um, is that people don't quite often want to die. They just want to stop hurting. That's we want to stop hurting. And we don't know what else to do. Even bringing up the suicide to talk about it with family. It's, it's an admission we think we're afraid that it's saying that our family is not good enough, that they, right. you know, that we, we don't care about them enough. Or, or, you know, if you're married, you don't talk to your wife, you don't love her enough, or you don't love your husband enough to talk to them. They're failing somehow. And so we carry all of that guilt. And, so and that's, you also don't want to burden them, I'm sure. Right. Well, of course not. Yeah. It's it, because that's the other side of it. If, oh, you brought them down. Now you feel even worse because they don't know how to respond either. There's not good societal support for those dealing with people that are struggling. This is why that we mental can... shift is so mm -hmm. important. Yeah. So I, you know, that means I, I don't know how to, how to answer that other than to say that it's, it's, it's such a tragedy because I think there are so many options, so many choices for people. And sometimes it's just that basic understanding that the perfect life doesn't tend to exist very often and everybody struggles. Right. And so let's connect and talk about how you're struggling and let's talk about some specific ways that we can, you know, methodologies um, that you can use to help in those moments that you're feeling anxiety. How can you connect? Um, because you, when you, they don't, I was just going to say, when you don't, the results are cataclysmic. Uh, my daughter, a good friend of hers from high school, uh, jumped off a bridge and, uh, and nobody knew. Nobody had an idea that they were hurting that badly. And yeah. they obviously didn't feel like they had an avenue to talk about yes. hurting that badly because it wouldn't make sense to anybody on the outside. Yeah. They can't see the pain on the inside. On the outside, you're vivacious, you're attractive and you're yeah. active and I'm, I'm so glad you brought these things up and you've got just this answer you've brought many important things up one of them is guilt survivor's guilt mm -hmm. um, people not sitting in your mind and your body they don't even think about that um, and then you mentioned your daughter's friend I saw a video on social media recently. Um, it was about a survivor's experience. And apparently this is something that goes through the minds of a lot of people who have attempted things like jumping over a bridge, which seems to be quite uh, more common than, than you would expect. He said that the second he catapulted himself off the bridge, the immediate thought he had was, I don't want to die. And he's just so lucky because he's one of the very, very, very rare few um, that survived. He survived it. He was saved by um, Coast Guards. And um, it, it, this conversation is giving other people the opportunity to look inside the minds of people who are experiencing, who, who experience such really horrors. And Social media hasn't helped. We all know that. It's very curated. Most people would share, you know, even photographs. Oh, you look so perfect. You know, they could have taken 300 pictures before they posted that one that's curated that looks so perfect. Um, and so we're constantly under pressure. There's also the, uh, there's also cultural pressures because Yes, this is America, but within America, there's many subcultures. And in many cultures, um, you have to be stoic. It's just not cool. It's not all right. You don't want to embarrass yourself. You don't want to embarrass your family. Um, and 
if you operate in such a culture, you're going to feel stifled. You don't want to be outed as somebody who doesn't fit in and who's not doing well. So, you know, I'm seeing when you speak, Carrie nodding. And when Carrie's speaking, I'm seeing you nodding. And I hope that as people engage in conversations like this, as people listen to those of us uh, among us who are brave enough to talk about their struggles, um, they're all nodding because then there's more understanding among us and it's going to have to start with that. Um, I have questions for both of you. I'll, I'll ask them and then I'll give you both a chance to answer, but I'm going to ask the questions at the same time. For Carrie, um, how do you cope with the loss of a loved one um, to suicide? And for you, Mark, what do you want people to know about someone who is suicidal and has thoughts about suicide? Some of, you know, this has been answered already, but what else that hasn't been said would you like to add? Who would like to start? Well, I, I'll go first. I honor my feelings that I have. If I'm feeling really sad one day, I acknowledge that. Um, I let those feelings happen. Um, it's part of just managing grief in general, right? You have to honor whatever you're feeling on a given day. If I'm, you know, if I'm having a tough day, I pull back and try to do something that I know is going to make myself feel better. Um, I also try to give back in terms of working to publicize the issues around prevention of suicide. I've, you know, I, I'm a teacher, so I, I'm very aware of my students and the community that I work in. Um, I will say on a hopeful note, I feel like we are equipping our young people to begin to express when they're feeling difficult feelings and give them the language around, you know, I have more students that will express that they're anxious or that they're feeling depressed. Um, I don't think I don't think we're there, but I feel like it's it's easier for my students, at least in some ways, to express when they're when they're feeling um, you know negative feelings than it was, say, for my generation. As I absolutely, know, I was myself thinking, as being yeah. as being older. I was thinking I was never taught that. So that's that's really an yeah, important addition I mean, to the education. Yeah, you know, we used to whisper the word cancer and now we, we talk about it. And so I feel like I'm hopeful, you know. I, I, I cling to hope that that our ability to discuss mental illness and topics around mental health will improve as we try to do that. So, you know, as far as managing the grief, I acknowledge it. Um, I talk about it. My family is really strong and we carry it together. Somebody's having a tough day. You can, you know, hey, you know, we have a family chat that is often darkly humorous. Um, so, you know, I, I acknowledge whatever's going to happen. And I, you know, I, I, I hike. That's another thing I do. A lot of hiking. So. Thank you. Mark. So. I think what I would most want people to know is that it's okay to start sharing your stories. Um, the best thing that we can possibly do, uh, the most successful we can ever be is to be a good human being and be our world requires it. Um, it our world doesn't survive. We don't survive uh, as well connected uh, human beings by virtue of what we attain that we can get more of something unless it's more of satisfaction and connection. So I think that's the thing to share. You find some basic things. We, we just uh, put together some videos actually coincidentally for some young people um, and people of any age on how to deal with anxiety and stress and uh, put them out on our DAC Northwest uh, YouTube channel. Um, but it's all about little techniques. Uh, so that's what's exciting about young people is they talk about these things. They look at these things. 
my son struggles a little bit with uh, with some things. I say a little bit because that's we we automatically downplay it. Maybe I shouldn't do that. Um, maybe I should be more honest. He's really struggled at times, and uh, and with my history, I get afraid. And so we talk about things, and we actively get out and try to do things. It's like Carrie has talked about: you invest yourself in in connecting with people because that's often what's lacking is that honest connection that it's okay to share every part of you that it's okay to share your your uncertainties and your frailties as well as your successes because sometimes those end up being your successes um, you just don't know and sometimes by sharing those you save somebody else and that ends up being a wonderful success for both. And so I think that's the message, the only message. And that's the why, why I speak out. I didn't speak out for years. Part of it is it almost seems self-indulgent. You know, and I thought about why am I so, so important? You know, big deal. I was, I, I was weak for a moment and I struggled as a youngster. And so I did something that I'm embarrassed about that was, um, uh, you know, and especially when I have a cousin that successful, two cousins that killed themselves successfully and uh, weird way to put it, you know, but so there's, again, the guilt reaction, whatever. We need to get past that. Uh, I have a board member whose daughter committed suicide as well. And so we start to connect and we're open about, yeah, we understand. We don't understand the same because we're different people, but talking about it and just knowing that that exists that we need to be able to share with folks that life is changing always and life is rarely perfect. Um, and we all share that. And so when we talk about it and we say it's okay to have those moments, it's okay to struggle for a while, it's okay to connect with each other, then we give ourselves permission to do that. Um, I think right. that's it, it's success has to be measured in how we feel as well as how we do. And sometimes that's the only measure. I mean, what success is there in somebody that starts up as running a great company and then, you know, he's found uh, by somebody later because right. he's desperately unhappy. And that how, happens too often. <laughs> right. I like how you put it because um, oftentimes success isn't measured by how we feel. It's just how much money you make. Um, yeah but not really the emotional aspect. Um, Carrie, one last question for you. Most people don't know how to talk about grief or suicide. So um, do you have any advice for people who are wondering how to approach a friend or a colleague who has lost someone to suicide? Well, I can definitively say, I'm so sorry for your loss is perfectly adequate. Um, you know, giving people space to talk about their loved one. Um, I love it when people want to talk about Ben because Ben was a great guy. You know, he was brilliant and he was beautiful and he was himself and his, his life mattered. It mattered to us um, and it mattered to his friends. And I, I, you know, somebody asked me about, Hey, what's your favorite memory of him? I'm happy to share. It keeps him alive to me. Um, you know, I consider myself sort of the, the memory keeper. I'm the one, you know, I, I carry him forward. I, the experiences I have, I, I like to tell people that my heart beats for two now. Um, he's, he's the other piece, you know? Um, but in terms of talking to other people, I mean, I don't have a problem anymore looking at somebody and saying, Hey, are you okay? You know, you seem a little, I, I just want to make sure that you're okay. And I'll even say, you know, you know, my story, if you're not okay, I want to know, I really genuinely want to know. Um, I feel like that connection, Mark, you mentioned that we need to connect with people. That's the thing. Give people the opening to talk about it, to make that connection without the judgment. You don't need to make it about you. I've had so many people, um, they're trying to connect with me and they end up talking about this other, you know, well, I had this thing or this other friend or this other thing. And it's like, well, you know, so telling someone that you're sorry is perfectly okay. You know, Thank that's you where I start that. with somebody else. Thank you for saying that. You know, before I started these conversations with both of you, I wasn't sure myself. Uh, I mentioned I have a friend who lost um, her young teenage son. And, you know, I've never been sure how to broach the topic, if it would just open up a wound that would be too much pain for her. It's quite, uh, it's good to hear that 
you know, the, you've been very eloquent, actually. You, the way you put it was you love people talking about Ben because it keeps him alive for you and you call yourself memory keeper. So knowing that, I will be able to take this um, outside of this conversation to have conversations with others. The other thing that I would add is to be like specific. I don't know if, you know, it's one of those things like, hey, if you need anything, let me know. Right. Call me if you need anything. And sometimes when you're in the middle of, of grieving, it's really hard to like, mm -hmm. but I had a friend who did something that I thought was just so kind and just utterly brilliant. She, um, she sent me a card. Hey, you know, if you want to talk, I'm here. And then she said, I'm free on Wednesdays. If you want to go for a walk, I'm, I'll be walking by your house. Um, you know, and, or she would text me and say, want to go for a walk? So it was like a specific left me open to say no, if I didn't feel like it, but I knew that she was, you know, headed by, and she sort of made it easy for me to accept that. Yep. So, you know, the, the, Hey, let's have coffee on Friday. Um, yeah, that's like a great sort of example. Specific offer that wasn't just an, op you know, and, and it was, if you feel like it. And so I knew that the option existed, but it was something sort of a specific thing that I could go do um, if I wanted to talk to somebody or if I felt like I needed the support. Thank so you that for that. So she's, yeah, she's, yeah, so she's respecting you. She's giving you space. She's giving you time uh, with your grief. Um, and yet she's also saying, whenever you want me, I'm available. And she gives you her availability. That is a really good example. Um, so I'd like to wrap up with just a little bit more information about mental health and suicide in general. 21% of US adults experienced mental illness in 2020. That's about 53 million people, meaning one in five people among us um, is living with a mental health condition. So think about your social, your professional circles, what does this tell you? If you're somebody who's suffering from a mental health condition, you are not alone. It might seem like it because we're not talking about it, but you're not alone. Average delay between symptom onset and treatment is 11 years. So a person who starts suffering from a mental illness at say age 19, on average would only get treatment if at all when they are 30 years old. That is a long time to be suffering, and that's also likely why many don't make it. Every 11 minutes, we lose somebody to suicide in the US. Mark, in our initial conversations, um, I mentioned I agreed with your thoughts. You talked about how mental health conditions are minim minimized compared with physical physical health conditions. And um, as you put it, it has to be really serious in order to be bad enough to receive treatment, which is oftentimes what a lot of people um, sadly experience. And even then, most people do not get the help that they need. So that really is the crux of the problem that anyone with mental illness faces, which is how mental health is viewed. People are not and do not feel comfortable or safe talking about their mental illness. I'd like to share that to begin addressing this issue, the Washington Patient Safety Coalition recently began a partnership with NAMI, National Alliance on Mental Illness. And together we launched an initiative called Stigma Free in Washington. To learn more, please check out the Stigma Free pledge on either WPSC's website or NAMI's website. For anyone um, who is not aware, there is a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It is a national network of local crisis centers that provides free and confidential emotional support to people in suicidal crisis or emotional distress. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the number to call is 1-800-273-8255. There are options for the deaf and hard of hearing. The, they've seen an increase in suicide and crisis support needs between January to July um, last year compared with January to July this year. Suicide concerns calls regarding that were up by 185%. Just general mental health crisis cases were up by 251%. 
with this, I'd like to also help spread the word that there is a new number, 988. 988 has been designated as the new three-digit dialing code that will route callers to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Currently, only some areas are able to connect to the lifeline, but starting July 16 next year, 988 will be available to everyone across the United States. When people call, text, or chat, uh, 988, they will be connected to trained counselors that are part of the existing National Suicide Prevention Lifeline Network. These trained counselors will listen, understand how their problems are affecting them, provide support, and if necessary, connect them to resources. So I hope today with what we've done, beginning these sorts of difficult conversations, that we are lifting the veil of stigma around mental health. When you end stigma, we benefit not just the 20%, the one-fifth of Americans, but you know, as we can see, it impacts families, it impacts workplaces. So it will benefit individuals, families, communities, companies, organizations, the whole country. Um, thank you both for doing your part. Um, hopefully we'll start a movement. And thank you all for listening. If you would like to get in touch with the Washington Patient Safety Coalition or our Addressing Stigma and Bias work group, or if you'd like to know how to take the stigma-free pledge, please feel free to reach out to Steve Levy, the Executive Director. He can be reached at slevy at qualityhealth.org. The mental health and suicide information and resources we shared today and much more can be found at www.qualityhealth.org. We also welcome your feedback on this as well as our other educational outreach efforts. We would love to hear from you. Thank you.